Hello and welcome to Founder and Chief Podcast. I'm Paul McGlone, Head of Business Development at Zeus. In this episode, I'm talking to Chris Yates, Chief Executive of FFX. By his own admission, Chris hadn't been near a power tool in his life. So why did he come out of retirement to be CEO of FFX, an online supplier of power tools and building supplies? How does he cope running the £100 million business today? The answer is the way he is humbly able to acknowledge what he doesn't know, and Chris is the consummate people person. Chris is experienced in working alongside private equity investors. He is able to communicate openly and honestly with his investors, staff and management team. Chris is able to draw upon his wealth of experience to get the best out of people. This even includes himself as he recognises the importance of self-reflection, mentorship and being able to sleep at night. Chris may not know tools, but he certainly knows e-commerce as he's seen it develop over a career spanning decades at Sainsbury's and other online retail businesses. He knows the importance of understanding client buying habits, getting to know their needs and building channels for communicating openly with clients. It was fascinating to sit down with Chris and hear him speak about the value of understanding the mindset of investors and how that differs from a management team and his view of how to present yourself in a language that the city will understand. Chris, welcome to the Zeus Founder and Chief podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How do you do? Thank you very much indeed. Good to see you. Good to see you again. A um, little bit of background on FFX for our listeners. FFX began trading in 2003. Since then, FFX has grown to become one of the UK's largest independent suppliers of high quality tools, fixing and building supplies. You describe yourselves as the first and last place to shop for high quality tools, fixings and building supplies. Your people are very important to you, Chris, as the previous conversations that you and I have had together have uh, educated me on. And I'd like to explore your journey to becoming CEO. Before we get to that, though, I always start the podcast asking our guests to describe where we are today. This is the a Teams recording, so we're not actually sat in the same room together. I'm in I'm in Wilmslow, which is in the northwest of England. Where about you, Chris? I'm in Eastbourne on the sunny south coast. Mm, so you're, you're, you're in a sunnier place now, and you're not alone, are you, Chris? No, I've got Wilf here as well. That Wilf the dog, who's supported me all the way through lockdown, is sat by my desk. There we go. Is 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 he awake or asleep now? He's sleeping now. He's at his lunch, so he's fast asleep. He knows what's right. If he's awake by the end of it, we've done something right in the podcast. Um, you've got an interesting background that I I know about. Um, our listeners won't. You've worked in many different businesses. Um, some have had investment. Talk to me through your career history upon arriving to FFX. Hi, yes. Um, well, I joined FFX in 2019. Um, my history goes back, clearly by my age, a long way, right? But uh, I started off as in Sainsbury's. Um, I was 22 years at Sainsbury's. Um, had a very varied career. Um, a chunk of time in stores, chunk of time in commercial, chunk of time in HR. They sponsored me through um, a master's degree. I did an MBA at City University Business School based at the Barbican for three years. And I suppose I was the classic conveyor belt graduate to go and get onto the board. And the sliding door that enabled me to, I think, opened up my entire career was taking to do an MBA that enabled me to not be different, because I think it's not about being different. It's about recognising you to do something. When you've worked out what it is you want to do, but not quite exactly, I had a hard look at myself, I suppose, and thought, this is really what I want to do. Um, I enjoy people immensely. I'm not a politician. 
I like to get things done through people and actually getting bigger in Sainsbury's just meant, I hate people we say this is a terrible thing to say, but actually you lose your business acumen, you become far more adept at stakeholder management, all other good stuff. I'm a bloody 59, 60-year-old bloke that went to in Melbourne to sell fashion jewellery. I can't even wear it. You know what I mean? I could, at least if I've got a, a drill, I can go and pretend. But they taught me something about being humble, that actually a fashion brand that has similarly grown from very humble beginnings to about $120 million worldwide. We had about you know, 280 stores worldwide. Um, very young team. And actually, they're like a sponge and they're desperate for knowledge, right? They don't know what they don't know and they've not been polluted. Sounds a horrible word. But they haven't been influenced by bad leaders or bad behaviour in the past. They've just grown. And it's been like a football team that's become really, really good. They don't know why they're really, really good. And they don't want to be told that they're rubbish. They just want to be told how to get better and grow and become stronger and fitter and all that other good stuff. The 5% often determine the behaviour for the majority of leaders. They focus on what's crap, not what's great. And this came forwards to me when I was having my interview, my final interview in Australia. I had to go and meet the um, the backer of the business. It's Brett Blundy Retail Capital, real broad, you know, broad Aussie, right? Who later I found out is dyslexic, a bit like I am. So this, he's, he's carried a, he's carried a, a supposed weakness on his journey you know we're all sort of paranoid about what we're not great at sometimes i'm sitting in this final interview and i've got it all prepared of what i'm gonna what i'm not good at because we're great at that in the uk we like to know what you're not good at so i've gone through my entire interview and i've got my three stock questions about what you're not that good at so i got to the end of the interview and brett says hey mate we like you i said oh thanks very much brett thanks very we really do any questions I said, well, Brett, you haven't asked me about what I'm not great at and how I get around both what I'm not good at. He goes, hey, mate, we're not going to employ you for what you're at. <laughs> and isn't that the irony? I want to touch on something that you mentioned before, because in my experience, um, and almost logic dictates or experience um, tells you that as a business grows, you need to bring in different skill sets and different talents and a business deploy, you know, the employees at zero to 10 million revenue aren't the same employees or management team from 50 plus, et cetera. You're, and I'm sure there's been changes in you and then you recruit clearly in your business, but you're almost telling us that you're a bit an exception to the rule. Just talk to me a little bit around how that core staff have, have gone on that journey and how they've been been able to still be, if relevant is the right word, but how they've still been able to be the right people for a business now that's over 100 million turnover? Um, oh, there we go. Wolf, Wolf's gone off. <laughs> that's a difficult question. <laughs> he's, he's answered it. He goes, bark at them. Um, <laughs> the question's quite interesting, really, because there's two things. Yes, the business that's 10 million, the business is 100 million, it's going to have different skill sets required to complement the team. So you'll need it. So functionally, you're going to need different people in the business, right? So there's, we all know that, you know, a CFO that's a CFO for 100 million, for 10 million, non-PE backed, 
the lack of breadth is a different C CFO that you're going to need for 110 on a journey to 200. That's a fact, right? But that's about finding those right key individuals that will fit the business. But if you talk about colleagues and team members that were there then, 15 years ago, and are here now, 15 years later, 400 grand, 120 million turnover and all other good stuff. There's two things you do. Well, I've done anyway, and it sounds like a preach. First thing is you engage them. Now, engaging them, everybody talks about engagement and culture, and there's books and books and stuff read about it, right? There's two things that hold people to be interested in what they do is if they become a shareholder. So part of the gig of the sale, when we got down to the final three bidders for us, to provide an equity and a debt solution. We whittled down about 15 houses straight away because I had a very clear mandate, which Patrick, then CEO, who was then the deputy chairman, bought into. And it was to say that actually, what traditionally happens at a PE back gig is a few people get very wealthy cfo ceo and a couple of bods right and they scoop up all this equity that happens on suite and off they go and they make a fortune so my logic was to say well actually the fortune is a product of a lot of inputs and if the inputs of the people is that everybody's a shareholder then we'll all be sharing together it's a very clear mandate that says every colleague is actually a shareholder so that was for h2 was new to them. They listened as to why. And I said, and actually, what I want to do this, um, of the sweet equity that we're offering, which is good, it's not enough, but we argued and you know, negotiated as you expect. But we have a pot that we call it, it's called it's called the phantom pot. There's two phantom pots. There's one phantom pot that basically, if we get to what we think we're going to get to with the business plan, every colleague in the business will probably get 50% salary bonus, every colleague. Now, they're not actually being given shares because to divvy up that amount, it's just too complicated. But they're all part of the phantom phantom pot. The second pot is where the senior managers live. The senior managers in that senior manager pot, um, there's about 11 or 12 of them in that pot. And at a successful conclusion, as we think we'll get to, they'll get the equivalent of around about a year's salary. Then everybody else, um, and that could be all the directors of population, have all invested in the business, as you expect. But H2 were very clear. They didn't want to make it onerous. And it was more of a commitment rather than a um, a sort of a handcuff. So a lady who is running our supply chain, whom I've known for about seven or eight years, on about 25 grand, immense talent, but swamped by structure and process. She's now a... I don't know, about a 0.25 shareholder, that means at the next gig, that 0.25 probably will release to her four or five times of her current salary. And she still can't believe what's happened to her. So you're, you're, you're leveraging there off motivational tactics, incentivization, loyalty, yeah, re recognition. Incentivization is, is, a, is not quite the right word. Incentivization sometimes talks about, if I give you this, you do this for me. Okay. It's a different one. I want you to buy into what we want to try and do. By the way, some of the stuff I can't have a clue what we're doing. Look at me. I'm a, I'm not a builder. 
I've never been near a power tool in my life until I joined here. So you lot know all about it. Now, I'll create the right process or structural stuff, supply chain solutions and finance solutions and all that other good stuff. But it comes down to the nitty gritty is how we serve customers that we know our, our, our core customers is time is cash short, time short. Is a, he or she is a tradesperson working in the UK, right? Often so to touch on what's important to your customers then because that helps about un understanding the journey and therefore how you can then provide well, this value and have key personnel in the business they that i asked the colleagues at the business said look guys we want to grow this business i've looked at it i've done the numbers and I, because of my dyslexic thing i'm actually very good with seeing patterns in numbers so i can put spread i'll put numbers on a wall and see them all pictures and stories and I said, I've worked something out, but you tell me what this means. We've got more customers on our platform at five o'clock in the evening than at one o'clock in the afternoon. Why is that? I'm going to work it out. You know, it's obvious, Chris, isn't it? Oh, yeah, of course it is. It's, they've just come off site and they're starting a job tomorrow and they now need a new tool for tomorrow. So what they need is they need us to be able to get their next day's tool for them for the next day's job after coming off the job they're currently on. It's as simple as that. Yeah. But our next day delivery is at two o'clock in the afternoon. Ah, so after so your critical path there is understanding that your your customer base, as you said before, maybe time poor could be cash poor, but are in a situation yeah. whereby their need is for tomorrow. And if you if you're not able to deliver on that or your cut off is at a point that's relevant for them, the business dies. It does not exist. Exactly. And this was extenuated with COVID, right? So it got even, it became greater. Suddenly, we'd worked all this out. And I thought, what? Because I'd, I did seven years of supply chain stuff with Sainsbury's. So sheds and lorries were my thing from Sainsbury's, right? So I know how network and transports work. So often CEOs or senior leadership teams, the, the gift I've had from Sainsbury's is that I have done the engine room from a store environment, um, commercial environment, buying and all the other good stuff but a big chunk of it is supply chains how do you get stock to customers in the shortest amount of time possible the lowest cost because that's what e-commerce is about and there's a lot of very brilliant e-commerce businesses that don't make a lot of money because what they see their world is all about acquiring more and more and more but actually what it is they haven't really got what does make a what makes a supply chain slick so we can see this thing. It says, right, basically, we've got more customers on our platform and actually seven days a week. Now, suddenly we're talking about something really unusual here. Nobody in this industry, and this industry is the B2B power tools and construction business. At that time in 2019, when I joined, did next day delivery. It was always 48 hour. And at the weekend, no next day delivery. But actually, to get to that point, there's a whole huge chunk of change got to go on because most businesses aren't geared up for it because actually if you're nine till five next day delivery at two o'clock cut off nobody works past six o'clock actually you've got to take your whole colleague population on a whole journey that says this is what you've told me what we want to do oh that's a great idea chris well that means we don't want anybody in the business at eight o'clock in the morning actually our business needs to gear up yeah. to be later and pushed and seven days a week so now, um, as of Monday, we won't be announcing it to the customers. 
But as of Monday, we will be enhancing our seven day next day proposition. So you can shop with us now on Saturday, delivered Sunday, on Sunday, delivered Monday, on Friday, delivered Saturday, then Monday for Tuesday, Tuesday, when we're the only one in the UK outside of Amazon that allows you to do that free, any price. So you will, con- so as long as you, as long as you hit, which can obviously be a sort of panic situation, but as long as your customers, receive that level of service they will come back to you time and time again because you're the reliable trusted source yeah but the way you then do is you then take a real massive risk because the real risk is then how on earth do you with limited because we're on very low margin so you haven't got a big marketing budget okay and we sell what ostensibly screw fix tool station being they all sell it right so to, to differentiate yourself on selling branded high quality pool tools, they're not our, they're not, we don't make our own tools. We sell Dewalt, Makita, Ikoki, all the well-known brands. We don't sell 39 pound drills. We'll sell 150 pound impact drivers. For you and I, an impact driver is just a big drill, all right? But believe me, they're pretty clever stuff. So we only sell what they sell and what we're not known. We're a little business on the base on the south coast of England that serves Kent really well, and the rest of it don't know about it, right? So the the risk was how do you, how on earth do you do it? No marketing budget because we we spend less than one percent of our of our of our revenue on marketing. Most right. e-commerce businesses about three and a half four percent. Yeah, correct. One percent. All right, and if I could spend less, I would. But it's not because I can spend less; it's because the margins are so tight. So we said, right, okay, we'll take the biggest risk of all. We're going to air our dirty washing in public, and we'll get all the trust pilot. And we, instead of curating our trust pilot reviews, so we basically used to ask 10% of our customers that had a perfect delivery to do a do review. So, you know, Paul got a great delivery. I got a bad delivery, but we knew that Paul had. So all that we used to do is just ask Paul for a review. And we've taken 10 years to get 25, 30,000 reviews. So the handbrake comes off and the whole, I mean, at the time, the investment community thought I was off my head. I said, well, the only way to prove we're good is to tell every customer, tell us we're good. Yes, yeah, 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 all good. That's a good idea, Chris, yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to give unbridled opportunity for every customer in the UK. We serve 2,500 customers a day now. Right. So 2,500 customers a day get a pass from us with a power tool or power tool accessory or some building materials being delivered. So we are now... 82,000 reviews in Trustpilot. We're five stars still. Yep. And we get and, and we daily have an injection of adrenaline when the reviews come out from the previous day where we've gone wrong, where we've gone right. Now, the irony of that is we're eight o'clock next day, seven days a week. And if you don't get it right, during COVID, customers were kind, understanding, and um, I wouldn't say respectful, but people just gave a bit more leeway and a bit more rope, right? Now, post-COVID, the world's become very tough again. And people have had high expectations and don't expect anything other than perfect, even though perfection is hard to achieve. But and you nice- set bar. Hey? And you set oh. a high bar. Oh, a very high bar. And it's going higher again because... As of the 23rd of eight of May, we go to 10 o'clock next day, seven days a week. Now, with only two hours a day now that you as a customer can't shop with and get what you want tomorrow. 
And actually, those two hours, majority of our customers, we know, you can see the volume taper off. Mm -hmm. But behind that, we've had significant commercial negotiations with DPD and Royal Mail. You've had to reach, you have to change all your colleague contracts with their with their blessing. But everybody in the warehouse now works a four on four off shift, starts at ten o'clock and finishes at ten o'clock. It's a big it's, it's a big change to the business and also people's working patterns and and their livelihoods, isn't it? Yeah. And then with H two, they get it, and we're now investing, and we're going to get we will be a semi automated warehouse investment two million quid this year. That's coming out of our hard earned cash that we're rebuilding the site. So that in three years, over the next three years, every piece of the jigsaw means best service, best cost execution to give the best ability to us to grow. Mechanising the warehouse is a game changer. We, we, we've seen that among many of our clients and many businesses that, that we see. And whilst that investment may be painful to begin with, you know, as you say, as, as, as those years tick by, it's an, it's an absolute game changer. Chris, yeah. I want to touch on the on the private equity process yeah, yeah. So you've, you've raised the business has raised or gone to private equity twice before yeah for those chief execs who are listening um who haven't run a private equity process before or they're beginning to consider um what a private equity investor could look like and what that means for their business talk to me around what and you you've already touched on a couple of these points but what was important to you when selecting the right private equity house take away things like offers and certain terms yeah. they're things that are naturally going to come to the fore when it comes to the yeah. um, 11 59 pm kind of decision perspective but just talk to me around some of the softer sides in terms of where how you get to choose the right private equity advisor and what uh, private equity investor and what would be your advice to anyone looking at private equity for the first time and what what they should look out for okay um First of all, and it's quite important, um, as an operational leader or leadership teams, you are um, you're in you're intrinsically about building teams, and um, you're not investors. You're you're you run businesses, right? The PE guys are looking at you first and foremost as a financial transaction. They need to know that they're going to invest in a management team that can A, deliver at least three times return on the cash input, um, that are resilient, that can take plenty of feedback and actually have a plan that is can actually grow the business. Many, many times I've seen people's plans being put together and I've just asked the same daft bloody question as a PE advisor. Well, how much is it going to make me and when's it going to deliver it? That's all I want. That's what they want to know, first of all. So as a leader, you've got to be You've got to see your you've got to get into the mind of the PE house because there are a certain bunch of people that see the world in a different way that you do. All right. So the hard numbers is what am I going to get and when am I get it? That's the first bit. The second bit is then you've got to think about how you can portray yourself in a world that they understand. The job of my job as a CEO is for others to understand us by me talking to them in language and understanding that they understand. So how did you do that then? Watch. I've had some very good coaches along the way and some um, Gary Wilson at um, Gary Wilson, Chris Clay and Darren Forshaw, Endless. Brilliant, right? 
so Cleggy was the junior partner and Darren and Gary, the guys that set it up. But all three of them, their world, especially because they do lots of turnarounds, is coaching management teams into performance success, right? When I came back from Australia, we did, we did kiddie care and I was taken under their wing and they they were brilliant at making me talk to them in their language so they understood what I was trying to achieve. So for kiddie care example, they thought that had no future. It was a business losing 129 million quid. It was only turning out 85 million and it had been ruined. But I'd learned... Um, probably from my previous experiences as well in Australia, how to present to them something that they would understand. So I presented them the business case, the business plan, and it wasn't a 28-page death by PowerPoint. It was three or four slides. One was a cash flow forecast because it's all about cash, right? P doesn't never wants to have a bad, nasty mistake about cash. So it's open and transparent. It showed how the cost base could be leveraged differently. And actually, having talked to all the suppliers, I was actually talking back to them what the suppliers told me they would do with kiddie care to make it more profit, get it back to profit. So from a business that we thought was a, an elegant wind down, it became the other direction. Oh, this could be, this is an asset here. We could get it to build. And by doing that and then involving them in the process of negotiating with suppliers and terms, they felt ownership and involvement. So as a leader, you have to be the conduit between an investment community that sees the world differently to a management community. And you have to sit in the middle, A, coach your own team into their world, their world being the PE world. Um, and actually, it's obvious. Um, my job isn't actually to run the business. My, my, my job is to manage stakeholders, that are many of them internally, many of them externally, to a plan that is credible and isn't going to fall apart in six months' time. Because that's the other thing that happens. P buy something, their advisors say it works and all that other good stuff, and it falls apart. And management teams have a some management teams, I'll make this quite clear, make this quite clear, it's not everybody, will have a habit of standing back as in with the advice it's gonna work. Well, I am an advisor. My job is to advise the investors as to why this is a great business and to coach the management team and build the structure that then says this can deliver what we need to do it and then don't build it too racy that's the other point if you build a plan that's too racy you'll forever be on the back foot and you'll be forever under the pump because actually what actually really happens is the PE firm go and borrow a load of money from you and I and say Mr McGlenn give us a couple of quid and uh, we'll give you three times your couple of quid in three years time what you don't what what my management team didn't realize the partners of the PE firm have to stand up in front of their investors every two or three months and say, how's my portfolio getting on? And they get more feedback than they've had by buddy Jimi Hendrix's guitar, I'm sure. So actually, it's my job, and I would say to every CEO there that's listened to this, is if you want to phone me and have a chat and let me just talk you through the way I've got through it, because I'm able to sleep every night. I always go to sleep about I know, 10 o'clock. I'm usually knackered either from cycling bike Cycling the bike or cycling the bike or walk the dog. All right. I can go to sleep at night and go, actually, there's nothing left undone. I'm not overcommitted to business. My cash flow is great. And, you know, at the moment, we're slightly behind planning. A couple of million quid of turnover and about three or four hundred pounds of the profit. Cash is great. 
because of also but get we also think because you think like an investor you behave like an investor and actually suddenly that all changes because we've got the whole business invested in a sense the management team have paid in but the colleagues are in it as well everything's like oh yeah that's worth that's money so two other ceos about to go through a process once you understand how they are you could then start to look for the softer stuff because you're going to be with them for three or four years maybe five you start working out the soft what bits have you got that they've got what bits have they got that you haven't you like and you go through a journey now even if you don't think it's important asking somebody's advice even if you know what the answer is is quite cool because you're not being machiavellian you're just opening up the management of the business to the house to say Look, i've got a problem they're really busy people and if they've got if you've got it right i had an issue last week we had a board meeting and i said to um, simon who is the chairman of the business and uh senior partner at hdr so i need five minutes he goes yeah i'm fine it's not five minutes every five minutes it's just five minutes every now and again and he sits there and he goes what's your problem I said, he goes and he's bright as a button by the way well the other thing is they're really intelligent so if you give them a complex problem they'll probably work it out faster than me anyway so I give him what I think is a bloody complex problem. And two weeks later, I've got the answer. Bingo. Oh, that's great, son. Thanks, mate. He goes, anything else? No, that's fine. Gone. He's off to his next meeting. As a CEO, you often get stuck in the trench and don't see out the top. And they can see the top. And that's a good place to be. Um, and never give them a surprise. If it's not going well, or something's not quite right, let them know. Because actually, it's so easy to go... Try and hide it. You see, I've seen so many businesses I've got involved with where it's all gone a bit bit wrong. And suddenly it's, um, what's the best to describe it? It's chaos. You're a seasoned operator and you've seen it on both sides. And I've had a list of questions and you are the kind of character where you only need to ask one question and you've already answered the next eight, nine, Absolutely. ten. In terms of your experience and the fact that you're, uh, you know, your communication skills are excellent. What... Thinking again around private equity and the private equity investors, and it could be H2 or it could be other, others that you've had. Where do they bring value to businesses then who are looking to bring, who are, who are looking to onboard an investor who have thought, nobody knows this business better than me. I've started this and have grown it to this size. What is the value to bring in a, alongside an external investor? Well, part of the obvious question about cash, mm -hmm. but they don't, they just buy equity. They don't, don't usually put the money in there. They create the business to create its own money. Um, they will have had businesses that have gone through every stage of what you're going to go through over the next three to five years. And if they're a successful house and they've done successful exits themselves and buying and selling all the rest of it, they know um, the path. And as long as you ask them, what do you expect and when do you expect it by? They won't be specific, but they'll say what we need to do is move our EBITDA from X to Y. And the things we need to do to do that I've seen before are A, B and C. May not be right, but maybe they aren't, right? But they're also they're also um, very adept because they see so many um, management information system, uh, processes going through. They're good at understanding what the nuts and bolts are that driving margin, turnover and cost right so we've got a good example um we have had 
And they came from H2. I wasn't quite sure about it, to be honest. And most of the management team weren't sure either. But we had to spend, we spent a lot of money on a review of pricing. Now, we sell 80,000 products, right? Now, we have skilled buyers. Um, but actually, a lot is quite manual and it's not very process driven, as we describe it. And H2 said, we've got this business called Simon Kucher. And they're the worldwide best at pricing and da 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 da. We'd like you to um, bear in mind they're not the directors. So the person that's in the company's house as the director is me. They're not the directors. They are actually advisors, right? But although they they don't have directorial responsibilities, all right? We think this is a good idea that you go and get Simon Cooch. And we weren't quite sure. Anyway, to cut long story really short, we said, right, we must do this, right? Because H2 is saying it's a good idea. I can't see where it is, but we'll get Simon Cooch involved. Four months later, Simon Cooch done the work. Now, what H2 thought was going to be the answer wasn't. It was a different answer, but that doesn't really matter. It's a different answer than management thought as well. Yeah. But the really cool thing is, it's bloody good work. Yeah. And by doing the recommendations of Simon Kutcher, who are a highly regarded international company that have reviewed our business, and it's cost us a lot of money, but it's an exceptional cost. You know, It's a cost that we need to do. He's then given us as leaders of the business and the managers of the business, and we got to do it, a clear strategic direction to go on that we hadn't even thought of. Now, if you say no, 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 as managers all the time, oh, no, that won't work because we know best. Your relationship with H2 or your investor will break down. It's yeah. good to have it. Uh, it's good to have, you know, it's got to have a bit of that going on. But it can't be the case of managers saying, no, 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 it can't work. At the same time, it can't be the case whatever H2 say could be a good idea. We say, yeah, that's a great idea. We're going to do it. Because this is a, this is a medium term partner as well. So, you, you know, you guys are going to be... In business together around the boardroom table for three years possibly five years throw a war yeah. in or a pandemic you could add another yeah. 24 months on to what was potentially the exit so you know you guys need to be able to to get on and challenge each other commercially yet you're still running the business because you're you're in the operational yeah i said it right earlier on when I, when we got through all the the transactional behavioral things You've got to look back and can I do you think I could be with this person for five years or four years or three years? And if the answer is no, don't do it. But only become that conclusion when you've searched your own soul to make sure it's not you that's the problem. Because ironically, in most relationships, people who say, Yeah, yeah, you've got to change. And actually the person that can do the most change is you. <laughs> it's there. The only thing I can change right now is me. And actually, my wife says, she says, um, You'll have a really shit day, but next day you're fine. I say, yeah, well, I can't change them. All I can do is change me. So I'll, I'll go and do something different tomorrow. Still like Groundhog Day. It's in the film Groundhog Day, right? Yeah. Every day is a new day with Bill Murray. Until he works it out that you have a great day every day by recognising what was wrong the day before and doing it differently the next day and fly through life. Well, that's, it. that's a recipe for life, right? Now, if I'm not doing this gig to become... Well, this is the other irony, right? Most PE backs leaders, this is what we foxed H2 and a few of the others actually at the time. I said, I'm not here for me. I'll come out of retirement for this gig. I quite like it. I love the people. I think there's some cracking people here. I actually think we've got something that's pretty unique. Now, it will make me money clearly on the journey. 
but I'm not do my aim. My there's two there's two there's two motivations here, CEOs. If you're just motivated about money, you'll burn out because everything will be short term gig. And if we have a bad month on turnover or bad six months, then you'll be into bleeding anxiety attacks of stress, right? So I'm not ever. You can't do stress. It doesn't just doesn't work for me. All right. So my reason for being here today is because I enjoy what I do. If I stop enjoying it, I'll stop doing it. So don't be a CEO that thinks, oh, I'm 48 or 50 or, or 42. No matter what age you are, thinks I can get really wealthy here really quick because you're going to fail. Because mm-hmm. all you're bothered about is the next month's pay or the bonus or the exit. And, and actually, you've the Bill Murray moment, you've got to get up out of bed every day and you know turn into the business and rally the troops and also you know manage those KPIs um, and you know live every day. Because I could I could literally talk to you all day. Uh, time is getting the better of us. Final question, and we ask all our guests who join us on the Father and Chief podcast. You're having your final dinner. You're allowed to bring free guests. They could be dead or alive from any walk of life, whether that be sports, politics, business. Who, yeah. would, who would your free guests be to join you? I'll tell you what, it's quite an answer to way this question, right? So it's my final dinner, right? So tomorrow I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> So tomorrow I'll have a different dinner, right? So tomorrow's dinner will be my mum and my dad and my brothers who've all passed. And I'll go and say, what have you noticed? What, what's been happening? Tell me all about what's been going on, what we've seen, what I haven't seen. So that's the, that's the best dinner of all that's coming, to be fair. Um, the three, oh, hang on, okay, the three. Right, one's a funny one. Robin Williams, he's dead, sad, sadly. But man, that bloke was funny. Okay. But he carried a huge... A huge albatross around him with his with his mental health, terrible. But boy, when he was in when he was on form, he could just mesmerise in. You know, good morning Vietnam. I just, you know, uh, that was a fabulous bloke. Um, obviously football. Um, Alex Ferguson. How Sorry. did he do? How did he manage to do that at the very top for so long and just rebuild probably three teams and still was able at the end to pull back a bloke out of retirement which was skulls to win the final final um you know premier league skulls he'd finished work finished football he was finished he alex goes if you don't come back i can't do it he came back for him why did he do it how did he do it and the other one's a woman um billy jean king so okay. i like yeah she's a cool woman right yeah yeah dead cool woman so <clears throat> it's two things about sectors yeah you know, one thing about billy jean was she changed stuff for the positive. Yeah, yeah. Women's tennis. Yeah. And then had the, and good God, she beat she beat that bloke called Bobby Riggs. Remember, the bloke that said women can't play tennis. I've seen I've seen the film. Yeah. She gave him a right good shoeing, which is good. So three people, right? Robin, Alex, Billy Jean. I'm actually quite all getting quite reasonably well. I think Alex has probably had some paranoia in him because he's come up from, you know, humble beginnings. And then, yeah, when I have every final dinner, the best dinner of all is coming with my mum and my dad and my brothers. How cool is that? Three, I've had two dinners on here. <laughs> Chris, it's just left to say thank you for talking to us on the Founder Chief podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening. If you're an entrepreneur or CEO and have a story you would like to feature or would like to suggest a founder you'd like to hear from, 
Drop us a line at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. That's live, L-I-V-E, at zeuscapital.co.uk. Or follow us on social media at Founder and Chief. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app.